Hello and welcome to this vidcast whose title is slightly provoking. Is financial strategy a game? Of course, we are not going to play in a game, but we are going to understand how actors in an industry, in a business, interact on a strategic point of view. And this is named a game. And the theory behind that is named the game theory. And we are going to elaborate a little bit on that. You remember the March educational film was devoted to the very well-known Dupont de Nemours formula. And the formula was insisting very much on the return investment or return capital, which is a combination, one multiplied by the other, of return on sales multiplied by assets turnover. I very much insisted in the interactions between commercial operations and industrial operations, between on the one hand the return on sales, on the other hand the assets turnover. And I gave you two examples. If, for example, you're in charge of selling, what do you do? When you sell, you negotiate a selling price, which is in the return on sales, and you negotiate the terms of payment, which is in the accounts receivable, then in the working capital requirement, then in the assets turnover. So you have an interaction between return on sales and assets turnover. I give you a second example, which is about negotiating with your supplier consignment stocks. If you negotiate the fact that your suppliers are carrying the inventories up to the last minute, which is named consignment stock, what's going to happen? Of course, you reduce your inventories, and then you reduce your working capital requirement, and you increase your assets turnover, but there will be an impact on the selling price. Because in the selling price as a supplier, in your purchasing price, there will be the cost of financing the inventories, which is going to be invoiced by the suppliers to you. At the end of the day, maybe the assets turnover will be higher, but maybe the return on sales will be lower. Then you understand that there are plenty of interactions. What does it mean, interaction? It means that you have to cooperate. You have to talk to each other. And it's absolutely fundamental not to work in vertical silos, but to talk to each other. Organizations have a natural tendency to work in silos. Uh, by the way, the academic world as well, unfortunately. When value creation, sustainable value creation, is based on co-constructing solutions. And this is one of the mission statements of this academy. It's a conviction which comes from my personal experience in industry and in the academic world. Now, interestingly, this cooperation or this non-cooperation is mentioned in a recent article, Winter 2020. 18 in the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance, and the authors, uh, Stephen Arbogast and Praveen Kumar, uh, wrote an article whose title is Financial Flexibility and Opportunity Capture, Bridging the Gap Between Finance and Strategy. They observed that in corporations and the departments in charge of respectively strategy and finance, generally speaking, they work in silos, they don't understand each other, they don't talk to each other, or at least not enough. They take from the finance theory what is essential there, which is the weighted average cost of capital, the discount rate, and the net present value, which is very much used to evaluate project, appraise project, evaluate the value creation. The authors also mentioned the fact that the theory does not pay enough attention to liquidity in project appraisal. That's a little bit an exaggeration, but it is true that the classical orthodox financial theory says that if the net present value of your investment is positive, you'll find the money to do it. Now, it wasn't finance, about strategy. Strategy theory says you're going to win if you have superior quality in your operations. 
which means uh, cost of your product, quality of your products and services, agility in your organization, and of course, innovation. What makes a link between finance and strategy on an academic point of view is a theory which is named Real Options. Uh, the initiator of the Real Option series is Stuart Myers, who published a very interesting article in 1977. Myers nicely demonstrates that if you are under-leveraging a company, you give yourself the opportunity to make investments which are generating a high value but which are very risky. And interestingly, the Real Option theory was initiated by finance and then was used by strategy because, of course, it's about capturing opportunity, grasping opportunities. In the article, the authors say, well, you know, the net present value basically ignores what will happen beyond the project. And in real life, once a project is completed, you have probably very likely created opportunities for a new projects based on the former one. They also say that the net present value ignores cyclical frictions on capital markets, some things that we unfortunately can observe those days. And then they say we have to be able to capture opportunities and we have to be flexible enough in order to keep your flexibility as a competitive weapon. Then they develop two instruments, what is named the strategically sustainable cost of capital, which is one way to alter and change the, the discount rate. Uh, the second instrument is that they reserve financial capacity, the capacity to do something. If stock markets are collapsing, if liquidity has been squeezed from the market, and if you have some financial flexibility, then you are going to be able to exercise growth options and make acquisitions, make investment projects uh, without needing anybody else. This is a competitive advantage. Now, is there anything which is missing on the picture? Let me give you two examples, two industrial examples, and we are going to see what is actually missing. Imagine that you are operating in a commodity industry. Well, then the cost is absolutely fundamental and you want to reduce your cost in order to remain competitive and uh, grasp uh, options and increase your market share. What are you going to do? You're going to invest, you reduce your cost. If you reduce your production cost, then you can reduce your selling price. If you reduce your selling price, you're going to gain some market shares because uh, selling price is what makes a decision for, the, uh, for your customers. The problem is what? The problem is that if you do that, but if your competitors do the same, what's going to happen? Well, basically, you're going to invest for nothing. This is exactly what happened decades ago in, a, in an industry, in the commodity industry, which is named basic chemicals. What happened? All the actors emit plenty of investment in order to reduce their costs. They reduce their costs, they reduce their selling price, but they did not gain a percent of market share. Why? Because the competitors did the same. And so the investment had been made without anticipating the competitor's reaction. Any time you make an investment, you exercise an option, as we say in the real option theory. But the very big question is, do you have the possibility to do it by yourself or is this option shared? Is it a shared option or a proprietary option? Then if you make an investment, but your competitors can make the same investment, you're not going to gain any competitive advantage and the investment is value destroying. What happened to the basic chemical industry? Many actors simply collapsed and just a few of them remain alive.
Let's take a second example in industry. Imagine that you have enough money, enough financial flexibility to make an acquisition. What's going to happen? You're going to identify a target and you're going to buy the target. Of course, it's more complex than that. And then also you can anticipate that there will be competitors' reaction. You remember the Pac-Man strategy, which was first used by a hostile takeover between Bendix and Martin Marietta. It's about 40 years ago. Bendix wanted to buy Martin Marietta and they bought the shares. Martin Marietta decided to react against that, buying Bendix shares. And at the end of the day, this Pac-Man strategy has an impact, as a conclusion, which is you don't know who owns who. That's a very important point. When you decide anything, be it a project, an acquisition, the financial structure which is valid for your company, you have to take into account the reaction you will anticipate from your competitors and from any stakeholders around your firm. This strategic interaction is named game theory and it's the most exciting chapter of modern microeconomic theory. Now, playing games is as old as the world. The roots of the game theory itself can be dated back to the first half of the 20th century, but the huge academic developments took place after the Second World War. The initial book, which is very well known by all students and academics, was published in 1944, and it was co-written by a mathematician, John von Neumann, and an economist, Oscar Morgenstern. The title of the book is Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. What will be the behavior of all these actors against which I am competing? Well, generally speaking, economic theory borrows a lot from existing mathematics theory. What is specific with game theory is that it is the one and unique, so far, chapter of economic theory which generated a specific mathematical development, and of course, a very interesting one. Now, let's take two examples in the educational films which I produced in February and March, Lafarge on Dupont, and let's have a look at how game theory can be introduced in the picture. Let's start first with Lafarge. Lafarge was operating in a commodity business. In a commodity business, price makes the difference. So what does it mean you want to grow? It means that you're going to generate economies of scale, you're going to reduce your cost per unit, you're going to increase and improve your bargaining power, and you can grow towards emerging markets, which is going to be expanding your perimeter of activity and consolidation. Of course, the problem of this business is that it's very capital intensive, which means that growth costs a lot. Before the acquisition of Orascom, the assets turnover of Lafarge was 0.8, which means that you have to invest $1.25 to generate annual revenues of $1. Then this growth strategy is very expensive. And if you look at financial theory, which says if you have the flexibility, it might be interesting to go for debt, Lafarge finances external growth with debt. Probably the net present value of the acquisitions run by the company were positive, even if the return on capital employed was temporarily down. Of course, the day you make an acquisition, the capital employed is up and the return is not yet up, so the return capital is temporarily down, but later it will become significantly higher. But the consequence is what? The consequence is you increase the interest expense as a consequence of increasing debt. Interest expense is the most fixed cost that you can imagine. What is the consequence of higher interest expense? 
Well, you pay your interest with the EBIT, with the operating income. By definition, earnings before interest and taxes. So if one of your competitors decides to start a price war, and if you want to fight against this price war, what's going to happen? You are going to reduce your EBIT because you are going to reduce your selling price in order to keep your market share. But you can't that much reduce your EBIT because the interest expense is a limit in the reduction of the operating income. So in the case of Lafarge, the financial strategy created a business vulnerability. So you understand that when you have to take this kind of decision, you have to consider competitors' potential reaction. In the case, the strategic interaction was neglected. And in fact, the financial strategy motivated competitors' reaction. If you consider now the March educational film, I took the example of the cosmetics industry. Of course, uh, the question was about the return on capital, uh, which is return on sales and assets turnover, and the relationship with the value. But if you take the example of the two companies of the cosmetics industry, which I mentioned, the leverage, the gearing, the financial structure was absolutely negligible. The level of indebtedness at Estelode represents 1% of the market value of equity. It's even better between quotes for Bayersdorf. Each and every dollar of equity is in fact financing 70 cents of cash and only 30 cents of capital employed. So the leverage, the gearing is negligible for Estelode and strongly negative for Bayersdorf. Of course, on a financial theory point of view, the optimization of the WAC is not realized because for Estelodea, the WAC is a cost of equity. And for Biosdorf, a significant percentage of equity, 70% of equity, is mobilized by the company to finance cash, which is generating a very negligible interest income. Now, the second question about financial theory is about flexibility and capacity, investment capacity, acquisition capacity. What is the financial flexibility and capacity of these firms? If you consider that your ability to raise funds to make an acquisition or to finance a project is about 50% of the market value of your equity plus the cash existing at bank today, you understand that this capacity for Estelo Day is about $30 billion dollars. And for Bayersdorf is $15 billion. So they have plenty of flexibility. But to do what? If you want to make an acquisition in this business, there are two alternatives. It's a big acquisition, and then you don't have enough money. Or it's a small acquisition, and then this small acquisition is paid by the operating cash flow you generate each and every year. In addition to that, if you want to make a big acquisition, there will be a very big cultural gap which you have to manage as far as the integration is concerned. So you understand that capturing opportunities through acquisition is probably not relevant. In addition to that, what is the acquisition strategy of these companies? Well, for Estelo there, it's a lot of small acquisitions, each and every year almost, but they are all entirely financed by the operating cash flow. And what about Biosdorf? No acquisition, only organic growth. So the question is, why is this very strong flexibility? It's not explained by acquisitions, and it is certainly not explained by optimizing the WAG, because if you want to optimize the WAG, well, basically, you put a little bit of that in your balance sheet. There might be an explanation, which is about reacting against an aggression, and it's about retaliation. 
The game theory gives you the possibility of an explanation. A very well-known academic, Mr. Schelling, who got the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2005 on game theory, studied the nuclear arm race. And he said, well, what is a better factor for peace? Is it the ability to withstand an attack? The answer is no. He demonstrated that the best factor for peace is uncertainty on retaliation. What does it mean? If there is an enemy somewhere and the enemy does not know how you are going to react to a potential aggression, but the enemy can only speculate on what you will eventually decide, then this uncertainty is going to be a factor for pace. So it's going to demotivate the aggression. Is there any possibility to apply that to the financial structure or in the cosmetics industry? Well, it's difficult to conclude. Is it right? Is it wrong? But basically, you can consider that if you have plenty of money today in your pocket, or if you can raise significant financial resources, it's a possibility for retaliation if there is an aggression on your battlefield. I don't know if I'm right, if I'm wrong, if you can apply the nuclear arm race story described by Schelling to explaining the financial structure of the cosmetics industry, but at least it's certainly worth considering. Now you understand that you can fruitfully mobilize game theory in order to explain what happens in business economics in different industries. Now, I would like to conclude this vidcast with a very famous game which illustrates game theory. It's named The Prisoner's Dilemma. You've probably heard of that. Now, there has been a bank robbery. Two suspects have been identified. They were taken by the police, called by the police, but separately. They are in different locations, in different prisons. They can't talk to each other. So, in economics, we name that a non-cooperative game. So no prisoner can talk to the other one, so they cannot elaborate their strategy together. They elaborate their strategy separately. Police knows between quotes, but they have no proof. And so they are going to try to force each and every prisoner to cooperate now, not between each other, but with the police. And the question is, what happens if you cooperate and the other one cooperates or doesn't cooperate? Now you have to write your game and write the utility for each and every player, which is basically what's going to happen to each and every player if they decide to cooperate or not with the police. The game number one, which I show, is about two players, A and B. A is in red and B is in green. If A decides not to cooperate with the police and B decides not to cooperate with the police, so the police has no proof, but as they are quite convinced that they are uh, guilty, uh, they are going to spend, each and every of them, one year in jail. So between brackets, you have the number of years that the prisoners are going to spend in jail. If A decides to cooperate with the police and B does not betray his friend, so what's going to happen? Well, A is free and B is going to spend seven years in prison. If A decides to cooperate and B decides also to cooperate with the police, so they both confess that they are guilty, they are going to both spend four years in jail. You understand that this game is very symmetric? If you are A and you decide to cooperate, 
What is very interesting is that you are in a better situation, whatever the decision of B. Let's have a look at the figures. You cooperate and B decides not to cooperate. Then you are going to be free. If you are A and you decide to cooperate, if B decided not to cooperate, then you are free. But if you had decided not to cooperate and B also, you would spend one year in jail. So it's better to be free rather than spend one year in jail. If you decide to cooperate and B decides also to cooperate, well, you're going to spend four years in jail. But if B had decided to cooperate and you had decided not to cooperate, you would have spent seven years in jail. So you understand that whatever the decision of B, it's better for you to cooperate with the police because it's zero versus one or it's four versus seven. So basically, if you're a rational game player, you are going to decide to cooperate. The game is symmetric. So basically, B is also going to decide to cooperate and both are going to spend four years in jail. So you understand that it's rational in that case to cooperate for both players and cooperating with the police is what is named a dominant strategy. The dominant strategy, by the way, demonstrates that it's rational to betray. But interestingly, it's not the best solution because if both had decided not to cooperate, they would have spent only one year in jail, both of them, rather than four. So what is interesting is that game theory tells you what is rational, but the game theory is also going to identify what might be best for both players, and it's not going to be natural for both players to move toward the best solution for them. So the rational solution is not equivalent to the best solution. Now, at the end of this game, you can say, well, these parameters are not that realistic because at the end of the day, uh, A knows B, B knows A, and there might be potential retaliation when they get out of jail and so on and so forth. So you're going to say, we can change the parameters. Let me propose you game number two, which is almost the same, but I only change one parameter. I said if they both cooperate, it's four years in jail. If you decided not to cooperate, but the other one decided to cooperate, you're going to spend seven years in jail. But you know what? If they decide, both of them, not to cooperate, well, as the police has no proof, at least in theory, you should be free. Then it's zero for both of them. And if you decided to cooperate, of course you are going to help the police, but you confess that you are guilty, so it's quite normal between quotes that you spend some time in jail. Maybe less than four years, but at least one year. Now, if you look at game two, you understand that I swapped what happens if B does not cooperate and you decide to cooperate or not. Then you understand that there is no dominant strategy. Because if you decide as A, to cooperate. Well, it's a good solution if B cooperates, but it's a bad solution if B doesn't cooperate. You understand then that there is no dominant strategy. But there is a strategy which is quite interesting to observe. What happens if nobody cooperates? Then they are both free. And it's important to understand that if you are in such a decision-making process, moving from this strategy is deteriorating your utility function. What happens if A and B decide not to cooperate with the police, of course? Then what happens? Well, they are free. 
This situation is then optimal for both, what is very interesting to observe in game number two is that there is a combination of decisions taken by both players, both actors in the game, which is no cooperation, no cooperation with the police. Then this situation is definitely the best one. But also what is interesting is if any actor, if any player moves out of this decision, the situation is worse. So it's named an equilibrium, it's named a Nash equilibrium, and there is no motivation for each and every actor to move out of this equilibrium. But interestingly, if there is always a Nash equilibrium when you can attach probabilities to each and every decision, this is a little bit about mathematics and sophisticated and exciting mathematics. But unfortunately, the game theory does not tell you how to get to this Nash equilibrium. So you understand that game theory as a conclusion is an outstanding food for thought. If you look at what happened in the industrial sectors, which I mentioned, you can mobilize the theory in order to explain the rationality of actors and what happened in some different industries. The game theory is a very useful tool. Many academic developments in this theory, many applications also, but in political sciences, in education, in biology, explaining the evolution of species. And the game theory is also a huge reservoir of potential applications in business, in business economics and in management for companies. Unfortunately, my observation is that the theory is not that much mobilized by corporations today. It's a little bit pity because uh, if you get back to the article on the initial question, it's a great link between finance and strategy. And as a mission statement of this e-academy is to make the link between finance, strategy, business economics, management, organizations, you can be sure of one thing is that there will be plenty of developments in the evolution of the academy which are going to be based on game theory. Thank you very much.